Lord, I, I do believe that, that you are present and you desire to do good to each one of us here tonight. And so, Lord, with that, Lord, we go into a very challenging thing for us to sometimes agree with, to understand. God, I pray that you'd bring clarity. Lord, I pray that your word would, would illuminate who you are and what our great need is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, the pain of that song is, is compounded by the fact that the younger sister of a, a dear friend of ours, she's just a freshman in college, that song was released when she lost her, her battle to cancer. And you know, suffering in this life is inevitable. It, it's just inevitable. Death, disease, disaster. If you haven't experienced pain or despair or heartache, someone, someone you know has. And the most common response to all of it, I mean, just, we don't even have to think about it, but the most common response to all the bitterness of life is just to ask a simple question, why? It's almost reflexive. I mean, it's almost instinctive. When we feel the sting of this world and, and the pain of grief and, and loss, or you hear news that just rocks your world, you say, why? I mean, why is this happening Two weeks ago, we looked at kind of how it all began. That in the beginning of God's original design, it was completely perfect. That the first human couple created in God's image was created to reflect back to God how magnificent He is and how wonderful He is. We were created perfect without any fault. I mean, at that time, everything was in harmony, and everything was pure, and Adam and Eve knew their God, and God knew them, and they had fellowship with him. God designed a world with the first male and the first female as the pinnacle of his creation. I mean, there was no pain. There was, there was no sharp knife. There was no sickness. There was no death. There was no need at that point to repair any relationship because not a single thing was wrong. And this is what we are made for. True humanity. True humanity was created for unhindered love with the, with the one who is ultimate, with God, and communion with each other and with the world around us. But when you look into the world, what do you see? You know, I see a father and son, you know, baiting hooks together, fishing on the shore while they talk about the challenges of the seventh grade. I see a husband and wife walking hand in hand. I see children playing hopscotch. I see kids with bloated stomachs. I see mommies having to choose which child is going to live and be able to make it the 20-kilometer walk for food. Infanticide, HIV, war, devastation, divorce, envy, tsunamis, drought. And so this experience of life is this bitter mixture of sweetness and agony. Much, much of it will never touch you. It will never touch you personally. But the echoes of a ruined world ring clear. And a certain death a certain death will come. And that's hard to believe, young people. But you'll get old. If God grants you a long life, you're going to get old. And your body will begin to break down. 
And those double cheeseburgers, man, that taste great now, they'll be the greatest battle your thighs have ever had, okay? <laughs> and for the modern secular person, for the, for the average person on ISU's campus, there are no real answers to life's experience of sweetness and pain. Why? Why evil? Why suffering? If asked what happened, what went wrong, the best answer is nothing. Nothing went wrong. Life is just life. Life is just this series of biological processes. Everything that exists is only what we can see, feel, touch, measure. Nothing exists beyond that. And so for the modern person, the entire spiritual realm is just completely dismissed. The whole idea of evil is just this, this notion of superstition for holy rollers. That's what it is. But listen, every single worldview on this planet must wrestle with suffering and evil and has to answer the question why. For the Buddhist, for the atheist, for the pantheist, for the moralist, every philosophy, every religion has to answer this question and it needs to either be explained or it gets explained away. So if you're here tonight and you're thinking, I'm not so sure about this God thing. I'm not so sure about this Jesus person. And you're living your life on some set of principles. You, you need to think this through. And we just invite you to hear the scripture's account for evil and suffering. Listen, Christianity has a narrative and a paradigm that accounts for the rivers of blood in this world. The Bible has a very decisive and real answer that accounts for, for evil and suffering and drought and disease. And so tonight, we're going to open to Genesis chapter 3. If you have the scriptures, go ahead and open them up. And let me tell you, let me, um, let me give you uh, uh, um, some advice. Okay? If you don't have the scriptures, like at all, like they're not even in your dorm room or in your apartment, we have some back there. And they're free. <laughs> go get a Bible. Take it home. Just, if right now, if you don't have one and you want one, feel free. Go get a Bible. You know, don't pay for it. I paid for mine. You don't pay for yours. They're free. So go, go get one if you need one. Okay, well, we're going to be looking, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 21. Before we do, let me lead you to focus on three things from this text tonight. Three things from this text. The first one is that real freedom is essential for real relationship. Real freedom is essential for real relationship too. Sin shattered every part of the human experience. And thirdly, we need to anticipate, we need to anticipate the ultimate response to our own undoing. I want you to notice three things, that evil only exists in the context of moral good. That man's distrust for God, it ruined harmony and intimacy in every way. And that the love of God is at work clothing, clothing us with his mercy. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, It was the woman! Don't blame me! The woman you gave me. It's your fault, God! She gave it to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, It was the serpent! The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. That is huge. We don't have time to go into that, but that is huge. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. And the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. One, real freedom is essential for real relationship. In order to even get to this point, you have to have some understanding of some understanding of evil and what it is. The scriptures narrative um, it is a paradigm that accounts for the chaos that we see in the world. It presupposes or it assumes that there one is a supernatural world. Cell phone. Okay, we're just gonna get through that. Somebody's getting a call. I should answer it. Just kidding. I won't do that. Okay. It presupposes that there is a supernatural world. Scripture presupposes there is a supernatural world. In other world, in, in other words, evil, guys, listen, is real and it's kicking. But we need some sort of history. We need some philosophy because for many, if not most people, evil is just a word. It's just a word. Most people will say that September 11th, with we, which we just kind of recognized just past a couple of days ago, was an evil act, but fewer would dare say that it's rooted in the supernatural. That is, evil exists, but its cause is not supernatural. Rather, it's something that we do, not something that just is. Therefore, evil has a natural cause. The modern person thinks it has a natural cause because the supernatural doesn't exist, and this is the way most people think. Let me illustrate this for you. The movie Silence of the Lambs, man, it won Best Picture back in 91, all right? I know I'm dating myself, right? 
won Best Picture in, back in 91. There's this chilling scene where, where Agent Starling is talking to Anthony Hopkins' character, uh, Hannibal Lecter. And in this scene, if you've seen the movie, Starling asks, what could have made you like this? Her very question assumes these only like biological or sociological reasons for his wickedness. And Lecter replies, nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? Listen, sup the supernatural is real. Satan is real. Demons exist. There is a real evil in this world. And we'll, while we are watching reruns of Friends, a war is being waged against your very soul. It's real. If we go back to Genesis we, Genesis, we see that Satan, he's the father of lies. And when he speaks, he's speaking his native language. Did God really say not to eat from that tree or you'll die? Evil is very real and very personal. So some will say, okay, evil exists. I'll grant you that evil exists. But my problem is, is that if God is good... If God is good, then why is there so much evil in the world? And I think the question assumes this. If God is all-powerful, why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he use his power to take the planes down before they hit the tower? Why didn't he stop men like Hitler? And here's where you have to stand, understand that real freedom is essential for real relationship. God can exist and always be good and real evil exist and really be bad. Here's some history for you about that argument. Back in the 70s, the atheist philosophers were on this kick and writing a lot and they made an argument, one particular philosopher made an argument in which he said it, there were four core components to the argument. It said evil exists and we know it. We know evil exists and if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving and does not stop it. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And so enter a man named Alvin Plantinga who wrote a book that put the nail in the coffin to evil and the existence of God debate. It was so good that in the end, the atheist philosopher said, okay, you win. Evil and God can coexist. And his, his central idea the argument had to do with the idea that God created a world and human beings where real and essential freedom exists. To create creatures, he says, capable of moral good, therefore he must create creature, creatures capable of moral evil. And he can't give these creatures the freedom to perform evil at the same time prevent them from doing so. As it turned out, sadly enough, the free creatures God created went wrong in the exercise of their freedom. This is the source. Listen, this is the source of moral evil. While Satan is real and only evil all the time, God created you and I. He created the first pair with moral goodness and actual freedom. And in man's freedom, he chose, rather than to serve his highest treasure, his maker, he chose to rebel against God and redefine, listen, redefine for himself what good was and what evil was in that that is the source of moral evil, and it is happening every day, all day, all night. It is man replacing God and crowding himself judge and king and supreme. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've talked to a stranger on the airplane next to me and said, 
got into a conversation and, and said, well, what do you think about God and pain and evil and, and, and what your whole life is about? To get the answer, well, I hope that God sees the good that I do and weighs it against, well, any bad. And hopefully, the good weighs out. Hopefully, the good weighs out. Only for me to ask the most natural question in the world, hey, who decides what a good is? Who decides? And you have to answer that too. So when we look at our shared experience and what's wrong with the world and bring that to, to the modern secular humanist, the best answer you get for what's wrong with the world, people are poorly educated. People are poorly educated and inadequately governed. That's the best answer you can come up with. But the storyline in Scripture says that you are the crowning glory of creation. You're fashioned by God. And what's wrong with the world is that we've rebelled against our true identity. We've rebelled against what it truly means to be human. And we've carved out for ourselves our own way of life. And we're the judge of it. That the answer to what is wrong with the world is me. And a little bit of you. But me. And you. But it didn't start out that way. But when God gave us essential freedom, he gave us real ability to choose. And if God made us only able to choose good, then he deceives us when he tells us we're free. And anyone who blames God for what's wrong really wants a freedom in life that is not actual. And if God did not allow for evil, then we would not really be free. And so when Satan approached Eve in the garden, he did so to a morally good person with the capability to choose evil, to turn away from God, to turn away from his decrees. Real freedom is essential for real relationship. And when we chose to turn away from God, that turning, that, that sin is number two. It shattered every single part of our human experience. Because you have to understand that sin is alien to this world and this life. It, it wasn't there in the beginning. And we're so used to saying that, that, you know, it's human nature. What's human nature? Well, when people screw up or they act mean or, or greedy or they lie or they gossip and they cheat and they steal, it's just human nature. But it's not. That's not natural to creation. Rather, sin is something that came in later. It's something alien. It's something that doesn't belong. And it wasn't part of humanity. It's foreign to what God intended. And the shattering of life, the way it was meant to be, it happened because of man's distrust for God. And it ruined harmony and it ruined intimacy. And every aspect of life was shattered in every conceivable way. Let me take a moment because I think it would be helpful to define sin and really what it is. Our word sin in, in the New Testament Greek, is, it's associated with an archer's term. It basically means to miss the mark. It has a connotation of missing out on the prize. And it's most helpful to think of the real issue of sin with this capital S. The real issue of sin with a capital S that it's our condition before God, that in the deepest place of our heart, where it matters most, we fail to love God, 
to honor him, to serve him alone, and get our joy from him. And it's from the overflow of this sin with a capital S that, the, that we live the, in this condition of our life and we cheat and we steal and we lie and we exaggerate and we look at all the lists that are in Scripture, all the things with the lowercase s that we do because the real issue is inside. And all those lists are simply an indicator that there has been a rebellion against God and what he wants. Another way to say it is that what happens on the outside is only representative of what goes on in the inside. And so when the first colossal decision was made to turn away from God, several things happened that were not a part of the original design. Several enormous consequences were set in motion that sin shattered every part of our human experience. Let me list them out for you, and then we'll, we'll and, and in turn, associate that with the original design. The first thing is that man's relationship with God was shattered. We were created for intimacy with him. Two, man's relationship with others was shattered. We were created to share in community. Man's relationship to his own heart was shattered. There's this great disconnect between our emotions and how we feel and how we act in life. But we were created originally with all of our emotions and our intellect and our heart all working together perfectly. Sin shattered man's relationship with nature. Disease, decay, tsunamis, death enters the scene, but we were designed to live forever in God's presence with this world being his gift to us. So now look into the scriptures and where this comes from. After the rebellion, Adam and Eve, they hid from God. They were alienated from him. There's now distance between the us and God where there used to be none. Adam blamed Eve for his own rebellion. The woman you gave me, it's her fault. She gave me the fruit. And now our relationship to others is so fragile. Man, it's filled with pain and agony. Sometimes it becomes hostile and violent. Listen, whole cultures are at war with each other. If you've been following the news of what's happening at the embassies around the Middle East and around in, in Northern Africa, we are meant to live and thrive in community. Adam doesn't even know what he's running from. He doesn't even know why he's running from God. He's alienated in his own heart. I mean, look at it. Where are you, Adam? Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I hid. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. What does that even mean? You've been naked this whole time and never feared. He can't interpret what is going on in his life. The fear is probably connected to the fact that the Lord God is walking in the garden. And Adam disobeyed. Nuts. He found me. Adam and Eve... And the whole human race is destined to the physical consequence of sin, with death being the final blow. To dust we will return. We were meant to eat from the tree of life and live forever. So where does suffering and disease and war and envy and bitterness and hatred and deceit, lust, greed, we can go on. Where does it come from? It comes from the human heart that's rebelled against God. It rebelled against God's good design for us. A heart that wants to be the queen of of her own castle, that wants to do it her own way, but is desperately, listen, but is desperately looking for love and affirmation. We say to ourselves, I know what evil is. 
Now, I know what evil is, and we point to Hitler, we point to Dahmer, we point to Bin Laden and say, I'm not them. I'm certainly not that bad. And this is the great paradox of life, that many of us live to get our needs met, like security and love and tenderness and worth and affection by squeezing it out of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or, or porn or leisure or a job. And we have not a single thought toward a need that is far greater and just as real. A, a, a need that we are so desperate for. A need we are so desperate for. You know, and, and I wrestled as I was preparing just what, what do we call this need? And I, and I wrote spiritual, but, but that just compartmentalizes it. It puts it in this, you know, nice little package in a tidy little maybe Sunday corner. So to call it merely spiritual, it almost trivializes our need. Because the great, this greater need, this need it speaks, listen, guys, it speaks to the core of who we are. It speaks to all of who we are, and it's so central to what it means to live and to breathe and to be human. And so the human heart is caught up in this wrestling. It doesn't feel like it's that bad, but it feels also the loss and is ravished by our rebellion and the brokenness of our relationship with God and the consequences of sin and is constantly looking for a sense of worth constantly looking to cover over the shame and our inadequacies, our hurt, our pain, our loneliness, with some sense of love, some sense of affirmation. I mean, no wonder, if you don't know about this, no wonder a 14-year-old walked into normal community high school and brought multiple handguns and lined up a class of freshmen last week and said after, after he had the class at gunpoint, now you'll listen to my story. Now you're going to listen to me. Why didn't anyone listen to him? Why didn't anyone listen to his story? Do you feel the tension? I don't know. Maybe because kids are cruel. Maybe he's experienced real evil. Maybe he was possessed. Maybe, I don't even know. But one thing you will always have with you is the ache for intimacy and an ache for affirmation. And you hear, do you hear the glory? Do you hear this echo of glory in his statement? Do you hear it? He's saying, I'm, I'm worth being listened to. I'm not worth what I got. I deserve to be heard. I can't, I can't be shunned forever. I have dignity. I have honor. There's value to my life. And this ache is real. And it's been a real in my life. I, I just didn't, I didn't demand it at gunpoint. But it's been oh so real in my life. Evil is real. And sin has shattered every part of the human experience, and we ache. We ache for what it is that God destined us for. And no one is immune. Everyone has experienced loss, and everyone is accountable before God. Everyone. 
Thirdly, we need to anticipate the ultimate answer. We need to anticipate the ultimate answer to our own undoing. Real freedom is essential for real relationship. Sin, it shattered every single area of our human experience. And now we need to anticipate the ultimate answer to our own undoing. Guys, this is where it gets beautiful. Because Scripture is not primarily a bunch of rules, but rather it's this huge love story about God's pursuit of his most prized possession. And each story in Scripture, it echoes Jesus' name. In each story, it foreshadows God's plan to remake how we've been unmade. You know, Adam and Eve, after they rebelled against God, they made covering for themselves. They made covering for themselves to cover the shame of being exposed, for being found out for who they are. They made ineffective coverings to deal with the shame of betrayal, ineffective coverings that tried to diminish the effect of sin, but don't deal with the real issue of the heart. I love this scene in Lady Macbeth, in, in Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth, if you've read it, she urges her husband to kill King Duncan so that he can ascend to the throne. And so he does, and then he has to go on to kill two guards to cover up the king's murder. And Lady Macbeth is racked with guilt, and her conscience literally will not let her rest. And she has continual visions of her hands stained with blood and is obsessed with washing them. And so in this scene, she stands at a basin and she's scrubbing and she scrubs and she scrubs and there's a doctor and a gentlewoman who's standing close by watching and finally she screams, out damn spot, out I say. What need we fear who knows it when none can call power to account? Here's the smell of blood. Oh, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this hand. Oh, oh. You have a spot, my friends, and you are powerless to remove it. And we go to church and we wash, or we help someone and we wash, and it will not go out. We sow fig leaves to cover it up with our goodness. We, we, because perhaps, maybe, maybe then God will accept me. Perhaps then I'll feel better. And that ache in our heart for intimacy is trying to be met. We sow fig leaves around us and we cover it with sex because maybe someone will accept me. I mean, it feels like love and intimacy. We sow fig leaves around us and we try to cover it with, with alcohol. Getting drunk, man, and when, I, when, I'm, when I'm drunk, I can, I can deal with my issues. I haven't, I haven't been drunk since I was... 20 years old. So I'm not speaking personally. Just need to share that with you. Boy, that pastor's confessing a whole lot up there. Um, you know, but, but maybe when I'm drunk, I can deal with my issues. I can leave them for, for a while. We sow fig leaves of power because we felt powerless with leisure. And we do whatever it is that makes us feel better. But listen, friends, it's not enough. It's not enough. It'll never be enough. And while we run and hide and try to escape the pain of our own sin, we try to fill our lives. Listen, God finds us. 
God goes after us. C.S. Lewis called him the hound of heaven. His love compels him. His glory surrounds him and envelops us, and he makes beautiful things. And he wants to redeem you from your crap. And so he brings death. In this story, he brings death into paradise. The fitting consequence for our rebellion. For when you rebel, you will surely die. And God brings a death into this paradise, but not to man. At least not right away. Not right away. Although he could have. Instead, in the story, he brings death to some other creature of his as just payment. And he makes a garment to cover Adam. He makes a garment to cover Eve. And so begin God's plan to restore the broken. You know, here begins God's plan to heal the lame, to open the eyes of the blind, to release the prisoners, to proclaim freedom for the oppressed. And from the very beginning, the whole of Scripture points to this final definitive act of the covering, the covering that God provides for his people through the justice of death. Let me say that again. From the very beginning, the whole of Scripture points to this final definitive act of covering, sheltering, redeeming through the justice of death the death of Christ on the cross. And God makes a way for there to be a real covering for our fragile lives by condemning sin in the death of Jesus, the sinless one. The anticipation from the garden is that through Christ we experience real rest from our rebellion, real forgiveness when we turn to him. That the God-man came to bear the consequence of sin. That all who come willingly will be completely received. They'll be completely forgiven. And they'll be woven into the grandest story of redemption. That in Christ, our, our true identity is being redeemed. And our true identity will one day be restored. And so this covering in the garden, it points to a greater covering that happened on, in the cross. And in sur surrendering to Jesus, we simply agree that life on the inside, that life in our heart of hearts, it needs to be regenerated. It needs to be reborn. It needs to be remade. It needs to be redone. The life on the inside needs to be harnessed first before anything on the outside changes. And that harnessing of our lives to Christ is called worship. It's called worship. It's what that, it's knowing and feeling that innate, that God-given desire that we have a story, that in our life it matters, that we will be listened to, that we have a spot and it will be cleansed. That we no longer want to be king because a more, better, and truer king is present. And we learn to anticipate God's ultimate answer for evil is that God brought justice through the cross. 
Listen, God, listen, you need to know this. God never overlooks evil. He never overlooks sin. He will always crush it. He's patient, but he will one day finally, fully make it right. And someone will bear the consequence of sin. Someone will bear the consequence of the rebellion. Either you will Either you will one day fully and finally be shut out from the presence of God forever, receiving the just payment for sin, death forever, or Jesus will have paid it fully, completely, forever. Those are the only two options that exist. And so how do we anticipate God's ultimate answer to evil and sin? What does it look like? I mean, how, how, how do we do that? You receive you, you, you live. No, no, you, no, you breathe and you drink deeply from the gospel. For in the good news, God offers you, listen, he offers you himself. Man, the way that it all, was always made, the thing you want where you, when you go looking for lesser things, he gives you all of himself for your joy for anyone who yields to him and claims Jesus as a perfectly good savior for a rebel like me. And you know, guys, that was me 19 years ago. As a 19-year-old man, 19-year-old young man, I, I tried everything I could to fix myself, uh, to find hope, to find healing. And, and when, my last, when my last effort to place my identity and, and my worth, and, and this is a, you, you, you come back in two weeks, you'll, you'll hear all of this. To place my identity and worth in, in a girl, when that failed, man, I hit, I hit bottom. I hit bottom. And one day through a unique circumstance of a man on an, on an airplane, he gave my dad a book and it's a simple book called More Than a Carpenter. And, and what it is, it just tells the story of, of, of who Jesus was. And it, and, it, and it recounts evidence upon evidence upon evidence that Jesus really is who he said he was. He's the king of the world. And, and I read this book and I agreed with it. And I got to the last chapter and I turned, turned to the last chapter. And the last chapter of the book said, said, lastly of all, the thing I want you to know, that not only is, is Jesus this, not only did he do these things, he changed my life, the author said. And I closed the book, and I wept. I, I wept. Because God had not changed my life. And I knew that I needed him. I, I knew Jesus hadn't changed my life. And so, in July of 1993... I, I yielded my heart to God. And I said simply, God, if there's anything in my soul you want, take it because I'm through with it. That was my prayer. Oh. And God began a new work in me. And, and I believed, and it just wasn't this hollow intellectual belief. But, I mean, guys, I believed in my heart. And, and, I, and I trusted that this is more true than, than any of the exper experiences that I've had. This is more true. And listen, I still live in daily anticipation of God's ultimate answer for evil. 
the summer of 2003, it was a summer I'll never forget because of what, what God did in my heart. And wh- while traveling to or- Orlando LT, some of you went to Orlando LT in 03. While traveling to Orlando LT, my, my wife and I and almost two-year-old daughter, we stayed in a country inn and suites in Warner, Rob- Warner Robins, Georgia. And about two in the morning, my daughter woke up and she would not go back to sleep. And there in the presence of this hotel room, um, we just began to have an argument, and the argument turned into uh, hell. And I approached my wife, and I grabbed her on the shirt, and I had a fist, and I cocked my hand back, and I was ready to hit her like I've never hit anyone in my life, and I was ready to plow into her. And I didn't, and I fell down, and I collapsed, and, and I could not believe what had just happened. Man, I could not believe. Never have I felt more shame in all my life. You know, you, you hear about these stories about these, these wicked men who do wicked things to women. And I, there I am, collapsed on a bed with my wife cowering in fears, going, I am that man. And that moment, man, I just wanted to curl up and die. What do you do after that? The next day I apologized and, and I said, I said, I need help. And that whole summer we went to counseling. And I began a deep mending of just letting God's grace just soak and just saturate my life in places that he never has touched, things that had been hidden for so long. And so for those who, who trust in Christ already, anticipating God's ultimate answer to evil, it means walking humbly with God. Walking humbly and, in, humbly and intimately with Him in such a way that you know your need for God's mercy more and more and more. That man, I've blown it. But God doesn't cease to love me when I blow it but rather I need to confront these areas of my life and ask God to change me. And I thank him for the cross because the death blow has been made on the cross. It's been taken because, listen, real life, real life is found in Christ. I want you to know that that just about every day, Every day, I, prob- I have to apologize to my kids for speaking harshly to them or, or apologize to Michelle for getting frustrated and ask for forgiveness. All that to say is that what it means to anticipate God's answer to evil is really personal to me because it's God clothing me with the gospel. Man, guys, that in the deep, unmet areas of my heart, when I fail miserably, I'm learning to walk humbly with God. I'm learning to walk humbly and run, run to the cross. Run to the cross. And God desires a real, intimate, personal relationship with you. And sin in our life, it shatters all of our experiences. Every single human experience has been shattered, and yet we ache 
because we were designed to love and to have intimacy and to know that we are special, that we matter and we have worth, but we go to other things to cover up that feeling that, 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 can, that can wash out that spot, that we think that we can do it on our own, but we can. And so God steps in in this grand story and he designs a way for us to get back to where the, what the original design was. And he says, come, come to me. Come to me. You'll find rest for your souls. And for those who walk with God and who have had that experience, like I did when I was 19, the gospel still rings true where God says, walk with me and run to the cross because only there you'll find rest for your heart. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I, I tell you that for so long I just I misunderstood what it is that you expected from me. God, and I tried so hard to please you, and with a smile on your face, you just said, quit your rebelling. Just come to me. Come and drink deeply the waters of grace that are for you in Christ. He's a perfectly good Savior, the one who did no wrong, so that you'll clothe me with a righteousness, you'll clothe me with goodness, that, that I am completely forgiven and fully pleasing. There's no way I can improve on that. And Lord, my prayer, my continual prayer is that all who are seated here, every single one of them would be present when you come and you are coming. All would be present when you come in your kingdom to judge the living and the dead. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, right now we're gonna move into a, a, a time of communion. Um, we're not gonna break down into groups. Usually we do that. If you're new here, we usually break down into, into home groups and just discuss things. I thought, man, this would be a perfect time to just to go into a time of communion. And you know, each, each time, each week, I, I want to share with you just a little bit about, about communion so that you have a, a better understanding, more, more of a thorough understanding of what communion is about. In communion, Jesus teaches Jesus teaches us that there is nourishment and refreshment for our souls, right? He gives this picture that death does not have the final word in our life. That one day, those who are in Christ will truly participate in the, in the benefits that come through Christ. One day we will truly live, and it will be just like what it was in the beginning. In John 6, 53 through 57, Jesus says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my, food is, my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And with Christ's words in mind, 
we are to be refreshed that God, through Christ, he offers real life, real life. And all we ask at this point in your life, that if you have yielded your heart to Christ, then please participate with us. Please participate with us, knowing that, God, there are benefits, there are spiritual nourishment in going to the communion table, that you will one day be raised to life. But if, but if you've never come to that point in your life where you've really received Christ or, or you have yet to give him your life through reasoned faith, then, then we'd simply say, this, this isn't for you. And, and you know, and I, I'll say this every week, and it, and it makes sense that it's not for you, because when you grab the bread, you say, Lord, your, your body was broken for me. And when you dip it in, in the juice, you say, your blood was poured out for me, and I believe it. But if you don't, then, then, then don't, don't go. It doesn't mean anything. Don't feel obligated or, or compelled at all. But may the love of God continue to draw you, continue to draw you into his plan, into the beauty of who you were de designed to be. Let me pray. Lord, as we go into a time of communion, Lord, we look forward in the story when we get to the point where we are made whole we are made whole and we enjoy the real fleshly experience of being raised, to, raised again in a new heavens and a new earth. And it is and becomes like what it was in the beginning. Community with you only through the blood of Christ. And so we celebrate that a, a redemption is coming because of a great Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so when you're ready, you can head back for communion. Thank you.